Hello, this is Real Estate Insights, the podcast from Savills that shines a light on every area of the property world. And today, six months on from COP26 in Glasgow, we're asking where you start when it comes to meeting environmental and social goals in commercial property. And on a building-by-building level, which changes will have the greatest impact for good? And where better to focus this conversation than in the host country for COP26, Scotland. It's clear that retrofitting is a huge part of this conversation and it's estimated that um, refurbishment projects can typically save between 50 and 70% of the embodied carbon that's associated with new construction. When we deliver a building like Cadworks in Glasgow, we think about the embodied carbon and the operational carbon, but at the same time we think about how do we create an authentic connection to the people that are there. It's got to be thinking about your infrastructure, your transport, your green spaces to actually make People want to come back into the office for the local community to feel part of something. I'm Guy Ruddle and I'm joined by three people, all of whose interests and expertise involve both Scotland and ESG. Let's start with Nadim Khan. He's a director in the Savills Engineering and Design Consultancy. He works very closely with the Savills Earth team the firm's team of energy and sustainability specialists. Nadine provides a wide range of clients with advice on how to reduce carbon emissions and energy consumption. He's in Glasgow. Nadine, welcome to Real Estate Insights. Hi, Guy. Pleasure to be here. It's lovely to have you. Uh, Claire Bailey is a director in the commercial research team. She has a particular interest in social value, affordability and loneliness in the workplace. So we hope you won't be lonely in the studio with us today, Claire. Hello. Welcome to this podcast. Lovely to be here too. Thank you. And Basil Demaroutis is managing partner at Four Partnership, a purpose-driven property investment firm whose assets include the Cadworks in Glasgow, which is it described as the most sustainable building in Scotland or is it just a claim of yours, Basil? Well, we think it is and it's for sure it's the first net zero carbon office building in Glasgow. Well, that's great and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So let's get started. Uh, Nadim, let me start with you, if we can. So we've got this figure of, of that everybody talks about, about 40% of global emissions uh, come from the property sector. And it's sort of banded about an awful lot. Could you just give us a, a sense quickly of how that breaks out? Yes. I mean, the property industry is very carbon intensive. And that figure is generally split between new construction projects and the energy required to operate a building through its lifespan. And so how are we going to change that? How are we going to sort of adapt? Because, you know, it's such a big figure that that it feels like there must be an awful lot to do. There is indeed. um, Ultimately, there are a large number of commercial properties in the UK that still rely on fossil fuels and natural gas as a primary energy source. So we really need to look at the way that we heat our buildings and also not forgetting the existing building stock, uh, a large proportion of which are currently poorly performing. So as well as focusing on reducing emissions from new construction, we really need to focus on our existing portfolio of assets as well. And um, Basil, in your, your portfolio of assets, you know, you're, you're, you're a purpose-driven organisation. So this is obviously, you know, clearly at the forefront of what you do. I think that 40% statistic is, is uh, as you say, often quoted. I think the more interesting one, actually, is the fact that 80% of the buildings that will exist in 2050 have already been built. So 
we really need to aim for the fat target here, which uh, which actually is the retrofit market. And I think especially when you consider that um, something like 5% energy efficiency is really all you gain by doing new construction versus uh, retrofits. So a new building is only 5 or so percent more efficient than a, than a well-done retrofit. You have to really consider that uh, in your, uh, in your uh, analysis before you start really knocking things down and rebuilding them. And when you say 5%, do you mean in the usage of the building? Because that's not including the embod- em- embodied carbon that goes into building a new building, right? Well, that's where the story starts to get really interesting. Because, of course, a new construction, new building, is, takes up about three times as much carbon in terms of the embodied carbon, the construction, the concrete, the steel, the glass, as a, as a uh, retrofit. So when you look at the um, return on that investment, the return on that in, in invested carbon, if you will, the payback period for a new construction is about 75 years, if you could believe it, versus about 10 or 15 years for a retrofit. We've been talking all so far sort of pretty much about carbon, but there's more to ESG than, than, than the E bit. Claire, you're, you know, you're very much sort of concentrating on the S bit of, of, of the whole thing. What does social value mean? Uh, in practice? For me, it's almost like a sort of umbrella, the S of ESG, and off that comes social value, but also health and well-being, and off that comes things like loneliness in the workplace, diversity and inclusion, and for me, I kind of talk about it in these three Cs, culture, community and collaboration, and very much sort of the culture of the workplace has got to change if we're going to have a Sort of healthy, mentally and physically healthy workplace. It's things like greenery in the office. It's thinking about those place, the spaces between the places. So the green space around the buildings, safe spaces, community. Then we get sort of wider thinking about the local community and and, and how buildings actually interact with those those communities. Um, and then collaboration, which for me is very much about the employer and the employee, the tenant and the occupier, but also crucially about the private and the public sector working together. And um, that's where the affordable workspaces for me comes in. Basil is making notes. <laughs> is that sort of you know ringing true to you? Uh, yeah, sure, absolutely. And I, I think it's part of a wider narrative that we've all seen uh, as a meta trend across uh, all of our lives and across all of society towards a more purpose-led and uh, conscious capitalism model. And I think climate is one aspect of it. But I think we do need to think about these things uh uh, in the round and uh, and collectively. And so when we deliver a building like Cadworks in Glasgow, we think about the embodied carbon and the operational carbon. But at the same time, we think about how do we create um, an authentic connection to the people that are there, not only through uh, energy efficiency strategies, but through social programming and community engagement and creating an authentic place that people want to come and spend time in. And, and that's absolutely right, Basil. Um, as engineers, we as an industry, even we, we tend to focus on sort of the kilograms of CO2 and the energy that it's emitted from properties. But there's a very wide spectrum of other important aspects of ESG that, that must be considered on the journey to net zero. And I think it comes down to not just a building. And, I, and I, this is what I talk about all the time. It's got to be city level. It's got to be thinking about your infrastructure, your transport, your green spaces to actually make people want to come back into the office for the local community to feel part of something. What does a sustainable building look like? 
Who wants to, who wants to have a go at that first? Uh, Basil, why don't you sure. take, take that first? Well, I think remarkably, it looks exactly like every other building in many ways. So I think when you were walking in, if you would walk into uh, one of our buildings, you would probably not notice it as being particularly sustainable or not. You might notice some greenery and some some leafs, leafy, uh, leafy green walls, but you wouldn't notice the fact that we've taken out uh, concrete and we've used uh, cement. A concrete that has no cement in it, for example. You wouldn't notice that our steel has 80% recycled content. You wouldn't notice a whole host of features, actually. My view is actually that um, uh, a sustainable building, there's no uh, secret sauce, there's no silver bullet for a sustainable building. I think they're the sum of a thousand small decisions that you might make, each of which in itself is probably inconsequential in many ways, but taken in aggregate, comes up with something that's pretty potent. I think as well it's very much about how much buildings are giving back to the community. Obviously, Cadworks is a great example, but Wellington Place in Leeds always springs to mind for me. 60% of their jobs taken are by Leeds residents, um, and they've got a total well-being benefit of around 1.7 million per annum. So things like this, it really shows, I think, to local community um, that these buildings aren't just sitting there in the middle of their cities. They are, they are giving back. And there's no point having a very efficient building in the middle of nowhere that everyone needs to drive to get to. Um, so for me, a sustainable building really needs to, to integrate within the community and have the sustainable transport elements and, and waste management in addition to all of the techn- technological advances that we can input uh, around ESG and net zero. If a, an owner, building owner comes to you and says, I want to make my, my building more sustainable, where do I start? Is, is there an, an obvious answer to that? Um, Well, it's important to understand that lots of organisations and and landlords are at varying stages of their journey to net zero. Um, And the very first starting point for us, uh, particularly within Savile's Earth, is to understand where they, as an individual or organisation, sit within the spectrum. Um, And we, we typically get involved in the production of net zero carbon pathways or strategies that are bespoke to their property or portfolio. Um, Ultimately, no two plans are the same. Uh, We consider measures that are specific to them, such as life expectancy of plant, lease events, and key legislative changes. But data is key. And once we have that data, we're able to recommend a logical timeline and a bit of a framework to start their journey to net zero. And if I if I may add to that, um, uh, just one one quick comment. I think there is a, a very logical place to start, and it's a super easy one. It's to convert and to change your energy supply to 100% renewable. It's a phone call. It's done super easily. It can be done in a day. Doesn't require any infrastructure, and it's uh, really one that everyone should do. Let's talk about repurposing specifically, because you know, as 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 you said, Basil, most buildings that, that were going to be used in, in around in 2050 are already built. Uh, I think there's a sort of presumption that making a building sustainable, an existing building sustainable, is harder than making a new building sustainable. Is that true? Um, yeah, just because it's more difficult doesn't mean you shouldn't tackle it. Like a lot of great things in in life, I think. Um, there are easy easy wins. Um, it might be as easy as putting solar panels on the roof and trying to get 20 or 25% of your electricity consumption generated locally. Clearly changing out gas for elect- uh, electrical heating and cooling is a, is a big win. That's slightly more complicated, but it's not unachievable. At our CADWorks building, for example, in Glasgow, we changed the design midstream when the building was already half under construction 
to change from gas to all electric. And believe it or not, we had the contractor hand us back a check for 100,000 pounds. It was actually saved money, not cost money. And uh, you know, I think there is this, uh, this perception that it's costly, more complicated, more time-consuming. But I think you need to ask the question and challenge people when they say those things because it's not always true. I was, I was picking up on that. I think that there's a lot of empty buildings at the moment as well, um, sort of post-COVID in town centres, retail units, office buildings. If we can use that for the greater good for affordable workspaces to bring in startups, entrepreneurs, um, university students coming through, keeping people within cities really helps local economies. Um, it gives vitality to areas, you know, and, and, and areas which could be quite sort of downtrodden can, can be brought back to life. It's clear that retrofitting is a huge part of this conversation and it's estimated that um, refurbishment projects can typically save between 50 and 70% of the embodied carbon that's associated with new construction. And as Basil had mentioned, there are a number of easy wins, so to speak, uh, which a lot of our landlords and, and property owners can undertake uh, with, with little uh, impact, both financially and in terms of disruption. Um, and I would also say that optimising what you have in the building by building management systems and the behavioural changes <clears throat> that are needed um, from the building occupants can all contribute towards reducing emissions in, in older properties. Can I pick up on so something that uh, uh, that Nadim said a short while ago? He used, the, used the, I think, maybe the key word in the whole thing. He used the word data. There's a big difference between uh, having lots of data and having any knowledge. Uh, we all know that. But... How important in, in especially in the retrofitting world is, is this is the is data going to be? Um it's absolutely central um guy to understanding where you are today and where you want to be sort of over the next twenty years to allow your property to become net zero. Um the data that we look at as our initial finding is is really that kind of benchmarking a property in terms of where it sits within the market and then progressing on to a more detailed analysis or the creation of digital twins, which is essentially a theoretical model of a physical asset that we can uh, play around with and uh, visualize how the building will perform in future. Um, so all of this data is collected and is really key to us being able to, to devise the timeline uh, and, to, and to agree when and where the suitable interventions and, and the improvements can take place. Um, without good quality data, it's very difficult to be able to make those informed decisions. Yeah, I think data is, um, is important and uh, it doesn't have to be um, uh, you know, a, a deep commitment that you make for forever. We put, for example, sensors in our buildings and it might just be a very simple um, uh, intervention that you do, very cheaply done, and simply even to tell whether you're running heating and cooling at the same time, which, believe it or not, still happens in buildings. Um, l looking at turning off lights and air conditioning when the buildings aren't used. I think there's a lot of very, very simple tech that you could put into buildings with it before you even get to the point of digital twins and some of these um, more advanced um, uh, technologies that are super simple to do, can be done today very cost effectively. So, you know, in this whole conversation, you know, we've talked about the possibilities and what should be happening. The difficulty is there's so much to do. What's going to stop it all happening? Because if we, if we need to know that in order to get over that hurdle, don't we? 
I think there are a number of challenges ultimately uh, in being able to facilitate and drive uh, the the changes that are needed in the industry. Uh, I mean, we, we've all kind of mentioned how important retrofitting is uh, as part of this conversation. And from a legislative aspect, we have zero VAT rates on new build projects. However, refurbishment works and projects don't attract the same incentive. And I feel this this is a, a major stumbling block uh, and will de-incentivise landlords that may ha- that may be reluctant to improve poorly performing stock, particularly given the rising cost of materials and labour. Yeah, having said that, of course, you know, they, if, they, if they end up with orphan assets, which you know, which no one will occupy because they don't meet legislation, you know, that, that, there's, there's put the carrot and stick here, right? Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a fine balance between... Um, the investment that's needed in an asset to prevent it becoming stranded, uh, but then also the the, the cost-benefit analysis that uh, individual landlords will undertake. Um, But overall, I think the incentives do need to be greater um, at the moment to to really encourage and kickstart the retrofitting uh, market. And maybe just to uh, to build on that a little bit and your point around stranded assets, as, a, as an investor developer, uh, we're acutely aware of the fact that uh, there are a growing number of stranded assets out there. And by that, I mean either through legislative action, there uh, uh, there's new rules that have been enacted in December that now make it unlawful from uh, 2030 for buildings rated EPCC or less to be let to a commercial tenant. And that's something like 85% of buildings that are being rendered obsolete. And 2030 may seem like a long time away, but you know that if you're a tenant and taking a new 10 or 15 year lease, you're not going to sign up to a lease that binds you into an obsolete asset. So whether it's either by consumer preference or uh, by uh, by government action, uh, assets are increasingly becoming stranded. And something needs to be done about them. And what will happen, I believe, is that prices will reset, um, to your point, and they'll find an equilibrium whereby it'll become economically viable to actually, for someone like us to come in and buy them and retrofit them and relet them out in the market. We all know about the E. Everyone's sort of on board with the E. But I think the S is still being seen as the sort of poor relation, if you like. That is starting to change, I think. And as a community, we're becoming much sort of much more emphasis on being kind and helping others. And I know a lot of young people, millennial, millennials, um, Gen Zs, this is really important to them. And when they go to find jobs, this needs to be part of the uh, fabric for them. So, you know, helping community action groups. Uh, volunteering is really important for young people, actually taking days out of the office to actually volunteer. And, you know, this idea of loneliness comes back a- again and again um, when I delve into this. And, and it's, it's just creating connection um, is really important. But I think it's, it's been taking a back shelf um, for many because it's really difficult to show the value. But there's many different ways now to sort of articulate this. So watch this space because I think the E and the S are going to run together now. Now, listen, you can't all go without uh, paying your dues for being on Real Estate Insights. And you're, you pay your dues by by doing our little feature of Tell Me Something I Don't Know, where you have to tell me and our audience something you, that we don't know. A little nugget of, of information that sort of shines an extra little light on, on things. Let's, uh, uh, Claire, let's start with you. Tell me something I don't know. Well, um, this should be a bit of a shocker. Social isolation is as damaging as 15 cigarettes a day. And recent surveys are finding that employees, 60% of employees feel lonely in the workplace. So that's got to change. Yeah. 
Wow. See, there you are. That's why we do this feature. Basil, tell me something I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to talk about how uh, real estate is such a backward and dinosaur uh, uh, industry. Um, and you think of innovation and construction. Uh, and actually, if you think of the last uh, uh, innovation or the last technological breakthrough that we had in uh, in building design, um, skyscraper was 1930s. Uh, Air conditioning systems were invented in 1903. Even the the uh, the venerable lift was uh, was created in the 1870s. So we've gone four or five generations without meaningful innovation in the built environment, and that's got to change. Wow, Nadim, follow that. It's estimated nearly 81% of domestic properties and a significant proportion of commercial buildings still use mains natural gas as their primary energy source, which needs to change in order to drive down our emissions going forward. Yeah. Well, there you have it, everybody. Thank you so much uh, for being part of this episode of Real Estate Insights. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you all in the studio. If all that's done is whet your appetite for more information, you'll find plenty on the research section of the Savills website, savills.co.uk slash research. Uh, we did an episode uh, of the podcast on electric vehicles and, and, and charging infrastructure not long ago. So if you want to uh, subscribe to us, you can, and you'll find that and many other episodes you can listen to as well but in the meantime that's it for real estate insights thank you very much for listening and see you next time this podcast is for general information only and should not be considered professional advice savils accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct indirect or consequential loss arising from the use of reference to or reliance on this podcast or its content savils makes no warranty as to the accuracy of the information in this podcast this podcast and all copyright in this podcast is the property of Savills and it shall not be used, reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without Savills' prior written consent.